This episode is brought to you by Haymakers Community Engagement Consultants. If you run a business or nonprofit working to make the world a better place, then visit wemakehay.com to see how Haymakers can help. This episode is also sponsored by RuralOrganizing.org. RuralOrganizing.org has been equipping and empowering rural changemakers since 2012. Visit RuralOrganizing.org for more information. Despite everything, despite us not having any documentation, any sort of um, ID that connects us to this country, we've still been able to persevere and it's because of what we're made of and all the skills that we come with. Uh, we're valuable. We're definitely a valuable community and we just have to keep and keep remembering that. Immigration and agriculture have been closely connected since the founding of America. In fact, we celebrate this special relationship every Thanksgiving. Today's guest is Monica Reyes, co-founder of Dream Iowa, an organization advocating for Iowa's undocumented population. Monica is a community leader and organizer who grew up without papers in a small northern Iowa town. We talk about organizing, politics, and how undocumented immigrants are shaping the future of rural communities. I'm Matt Hildreth, and you're listening to Flyover Folk, exploring the progressive arts, culture, and politics of rural America. My fir- my first question, I think, for you is, you know, as, as somebody that grew up in a small uh, small town in in Iowa, is what what statement is more true? Uh, you know, Iowa needs immigrants, or immigrants need Iowa? Because a lot of time you talk about, you know, you always hear about immigrants coming to America. And I think often people don't realize, especially in places like Iowa, like how uh, how different the communities would be if immigrants, you know, weren't coming. And I know, especially in Iowa, there's a lot of towns where immigrants aren't coming. Um, and I and it's, I think it's hard to see a future for those towns. But but the towns like Storm Lake and other towns, you know, across the state that have figured it out seem to be doing really well. So. I'm just curious, you know, from your perspective, like if you ever feel like, uh, why am I even (laughs) putting up with some of the crap I put up with? Yeah. So honestly, I think we all need each other. But if I were to have to choose, it would be Iowa needs immigrants. uh, Because in my experience, my mom can take her skill set anywhere she goes in this country and she'll be able to persevere. Now, Iowa needs people like her. Uh, I grew up in a really small town where when we first arrived in 2003, there were about four Latino families. By the time we left, 10 years later in 2013, there were about 40 Latino families. And all of them were immigrants. And all of them came and replenished the economy, came and filled up the schools. I mean, it was just a boom for for the town and the community. And it's happening all over rural Iowa, and Iowa needs it in general. I'm curious, like to, uh, I would be curious to see like part of the conversations when you, when you, you know, you're first arriving and you're talking to each other, like trying to explain some of the crazy, <laughs> the crazy traditions that, uh, folks in Iowa have, or, I mean, what was that like? Like, I, I know just being in an Iowa sort of as a, somewhat of a newcomer, uh, you know, just get confusing lunch with dinner <laughs> for somebody. It's, confusing. it's a confusing bunch of people. Yeah. <laughs> well, honestly, um, we, I, I mean, we lived in Marshalltown, Waterloo, but New Hampton was quite an experience. Uh, the Just the small town culture is, is real different from even like a town like Waterloo, but that's just bigger, but not even a city, I don't think. Uh, like... 
you know, after five o'clock, all the businesses are closed. You're not going to have any luck finding anything open except for a gas station and everyone going to specific community events. Um, and like you said, like lunch and dinner. <laughs> I remember people would be like, oh, yeah, let's have dinner. And they meant lunch, you know, little things like that. Um, but uh, I think that in our small town, we did a really cool job because my mom, um, with a lot of other community members, participated in like cultural awareness days that really helped introduce Latinos into the community. And I'm a big believer of if people share, you know, certain experiences like eating together, drinking together, listening to food together, just sharing experiences, uh, both both all groups get to learn about each other and kind of get more in the middle rather than extremists. Yeah. So I wonder if you like, you know, just going back to when you first, how old were you when you first moved to Iowa? First moved to Iowa, I was about six, seven. Okay. And you were coming from, um, California. California. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like if you could go back then and, you know, having now spent a bunch of time in Iowa and, and understanding it more <laughs> as much as anybody could, I guess. Um, what what do you wish you could have to told those first people that you were, you know, interacting with the the sort of the the hosting community? Hmm. Jeez, that's a good question. What could I have told them? Uh... I don't know. You know, I think that, I mean, I've had a really good experience, I think, in Iowa because um, the whole Iowa Nice, we received it. We had a lot of, like, in when we first arrived to Marshalltown, that was the first town we lived in. Um, it was school teachers there that tried to help us with our immigration problems, and they ended up finding out that there was no solution for us. And instead, they helped empower me and my family to you know, be successful through education. So <laughs> I've always had a pretty good experience. But uh, if anything, the only thing that I feel like I, I struggled with, and honestly, my whole family struggled with, was bilingualism. Because we came to Iowa from California. In California, I remember having spelling tests that had like at least five words in Spanish and the rest were English. I came to Iowa and I still wasn't, I was not fluent in English yet. I still had, uh, I still struggled. My vocabulary was very slim and I remember uh, teachers in the schools, they had, I mean the school that we went to actually had to hire like ELL or ESL teachers for for uh, the families that were starting to arrive that couldn't speak English very well. And I remember at that time, I know that things have changed and they don't do this anymore in a lot of towns, but at that time, they, they recommended that our family stop speaking Spanish at home. Mm -hmm. And even at school, you know, they said, talk English all you can, just assimilate. And that was one thing that, um, affected us negatively in the future because by the time, I mean, that was what, six, seven years old. By the time I was 13, I could barely keep up a conversation in Spanish. Hmm. And so I lost a lot of that bilingualism in that little span of years. Uh, thankfully, my family uh, went back to speaking Spanish at home once they realized how, um, 
what the negative effect that it had on us only speaking English. So that was one thing that we struggled with at that time, uh, the bilingualism and just accepting different languages and, and embracing our native language. Yeah, I'm wondering if you have a story about um, those those first kind of interact interactions in New Hampton. Uh, is there any teacher that that sticks out, or I mean, you mentioned Marshalltown as well, but I'd be curious to hear yeah. more about those people that you kind of were encountering when you got there. Well, honestly, the the on the bilingualism thing, um, you know, in Marshalltown we had that where teachers and they were willing to hire teachers to help up help out with the ELL and things like that. But then when we moved to New Hampton, I remember being, um, my mom was enrolling my sister and I in the middle school, and she went over to the elementary school to enroll my brother into elementary school. And by then, our English was really good, and our Spanish was very minimal. And I remember her sitting down in with the principal of the elementary, and the elementary school teacher, or school principal telling her, right away before she real my, my mom could even say anything she was like oh by the way um we don't really we can't help students that don't speak good english and you'd probably better off taking your kids to the catholic school and i remember my mom being like well just so you know i'm but i'm completely bilingual and my kids speak better english than spanish and the principal was just shocked, you know. And it, so that's something that I think we've run, on, we've run, we've run into, you know, not embracing other languages and not accommodating other languages and not, not being so open to bilingualism in the schools. And, and it's unfortunate because this this state and this country is moving towards bilingualism, and it's not catching on by the the state schools. So talk talk to me a little bit about how you got involved in in activism. I mean, I think everybody that that knows you now, well, a lot of people that know you, um, kind of in your public role, know you from Dream Iowa and 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 in your activism. But but how did that start? Did that start in New Hampton? Actually, yeah, um, community organizing. It actually it was before Dream Iowa and before DACA. Uh, and I'm I'm pretty sure you know this, but uh, my sister and I, uh, around 2010, 2011, um, leading up to 2012, we took part in some community organizing that we didn't even know was labeled community. Or we were doing community organizing before there was a label or it was cool. Um, <laughs> I remember in the town we grew up in, it's about an hour south of the Minnesota border. So in Iowa, people cannot, undocumented immigrants cannot register cars under their own name. So they would register them in, with their friends' addresses in Minnesota because Minnesota does let you register even if you're undocumented. So we would register our vehicles in Minnesota. And um, soon enough, there was about two bad cops that realized that. And um, so they, they basically would pull over anybody that was driving with Minnesota plates and that was brown. If you were brown driving with Minnesota plates, it didn't matter if you didn't break the law. It didn't matter that you didn't do anything wrong. You were going to be pulled over for sure by those two officers. So um, we started hearing uh, there was there was the community started, uh, you know, having many concerns about it. Uh, my big thing was that um, I mean, the, the treatment of undocumented immigrants that were being pulled over was completely disrespectful the officers were definitely out of line they were not behaving the way that they should have 
in certain situations. And uh, my biggest concern was like, for example, my brother one time was walking around with his friends who were also Latino and some guy in a big old truck drove by them, throwing things at them and yelling racial slurs at them. And they were about a block away from the police department. And I was like, you know, why didn't you go to the police department and, you know, call them out or say something? And he's like, why? They're not going to do anything. They hate us. You know, they don't like us. And that was when I realized that our youth, our native natural born U.S. citizen youth, were too scared and distrusting of the police that they wouldn't even report crimes Hmm. against them. So I started thinking, you know, how many kids are going through domestic violence at home or might be abused or, you know, kids were not going to start, we're going to start not reporting crimes. So at that point, it became an issue of building that bridge, building that bridge between the Latino community and the and law enforcement, because I grew up trusting in law enforcement and knowing that they are there to protect and serve our community. And unfortunately, I was seeing youth, Latino youth, natural born U.S. citizens, not um, not seeing that and not trusting law enforcement. So we ended up organizing, we ended up making our own transportation system. So anybody that was documented would give everyone else a ride to school, to work. We had shifts. Um, We had people would go grocery shopping, would take people grocery shopping to just, you know, lessen the amount of people that were being pulled over without a driver's license and um, being profiled, racially profiled. So once we had about 12 cases documented, uh, I mean, I reached out to the ACLU, to the Civil Rights Commission, different organizations for guidance and they helped me learn how to document these cases and try to take an active role in you know while it was happening or right afterwards so once I had about 12 cases we started meeting with the chief of police the county attorney um, there was church members involved and we ended up um, changing everything for the better and the relationship in that community between law enforcement and the Latino community is still really good really healthy and um, that was all before I had DACA, um, before Nilvia and I had DACA. I remember riding our bicycles, trying to get to the places where people were being pulled over in the moment. And I remember meeting in the church basement, um, you know, little things like that. And in our town, it made a difference. The community came together and they fought back. So what would be your advice for, um, for folks living in small towns, um, you know, that, that maybe are seeing a change in their demographics, they don't really know where to start, um, maybe they've tried reaching out, but, but just didn't know who to talk to or, or anything like that? Would, I mean, you mentioned ESL teachers. Um, is that like a place to start or, or where, where should people go if they, if they want to at least let people know that they care? Yeah. The schools, the churches, um, trying to do cultural awareness nights, um, you know, cultural fairs, you know, potlucks. My mom would do potlucks uh, through the church. Like she would have the Latino families bring in, bring in food and then the the white people would go in and, you know, learn about the Mexican traditions. And um, we would do it through the schools, too. Um, there's a lot of different ways uh, reaching out to the Latino families that are involved through the schools or the churches. That's a great way to start. And just start building that that conversation. Uh, I can guarantee you that that the immigrant families are definitely going to be receptive and thankful. I mean, I, we were really grateful that 
people were so welcoming in Iowa and people were so willing to give us a chance for us to show them what we had, what we had uh, for food, for dancing, for everything. Um, and I think that, that it worked out really well having some of those. I mean, if someone lives in a small town, a good way to start is to do like a cultural awareness night or something like that. Yeah. And, and, and with, with the Trump administration now, I mean, a lot, a lot's changing. I mean, I think you know, as we speak, things are changing. How should people engage their their police? I mean, uh, in terms of of letting them know um, that that they want to live in a welcoming community, or that they want you know lo- local law enforcement to sort of back off the Trump's deportation force, for lack of a better term. Mm. I would say, I mean, if specifically about the you know the proposed deportation machine <laughs> a good way for for people that are not immigrants to be involved is to try to reach out to their local law enforcement try to reach out to their local city council members reach out to their mayors and and ask them you know what is your stance what do you plan to do start start asking them and as constituents because Honestly, I'm undocumented. I don't have that right to vote yet. <laughs> um, so I I can't really go out there and talk to a politician, an elected official and say, hey, you know, my you won't have my vote if you don't do this or do that. We need our constituents to do that because they have that power. They have that right to vote. And um, they, they, that's something that they can do is hold those elected officials accountable for, for what they've said and, um, or try to stop them if they said negative things, like, you know, if they've said anti-immigrant things, you know, challenge them and ask them, you know, how is this good for our economy? Can you point out why you want to do this? How is this going to benefit our town? Because I see it doing the opposite. You know, it's it's challenging or holding people accountable because sometimes we have elected officials that say they're welcoming, but then don't do anything. So right. that's when we hold, have to hold them accountable. And then there's those that say the opposite and want to deport everyone. And then we have to challenge them and ask them why. And in public, you know, if you can record it like you trained me to do, yeah. <laughs> even better. But yeah. um, we need constituents, people that have citizenship, people that have that voting power to do that, be out there and start those conversations because they don't take people like myself seriously because they know I don't have the right to vote yet. Yeah, They know I don't have that power. And that's what citizens do have that power yeah and i think that that's that's you mentioned the the going to town halls and stuff which now i mean it's sort of all the rage um everybody's showing it's, it's a little bit frustrating like where were you where were you uh the last eight years but um <laughs> but but you you've done that probably uh, more than probably anybody i know um being in iowa and being able to challenge the, the presidential candidates coming through uh and i'm wondering if you have just like a tip on that because i think people are afraid to do it because you know, especially if you're in a small town, everybody in the room, you probably know everybody. Um, and then, you know, there's here you are doing it to, to Steve King, one of the most anti-immigrant members of Congress uh, in in I think it was in your hometown. Um, it was in New Hampton, right? Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. So and I, I think that was one of the first times you came out as being undocumented publicly. And so I don't know if there's a, a more terrifying situation um, th- than that. But I- I'm just curious if you have like uh, one or two pointers for preparing for those moments. Okay. Yes. So 
My first time was definitely terrifying. It was my first time ever coming out as undocumented in public. And it was with the most anti-immigrant uh, representative that there is out there <laughs> in the Fed, you know, even at the, at the, at the nation's level. But um, I would say what some things that are helpful is to have support one or two people even, you know, they don't have to say anything. They just have to be there for support because it was really tough for me. And um, it was an emotional experience for me. And it helped having so many people there in support. I think I showed up with more people in my support than than people that had gone to actually see him for that town hall meeting. So that was really nice having that support from my community. And none of them even had to say anything. They just had to be there, you know, sitting right next to me there to just support me. Uh, another thing is to not back down. Uh, I went in to that room. I mean, going in right away, they, the, the, some of his staff or his volunteers, just as soon as they saw us coming in, they started shaking their head and kind of like, oh, what are these people doing here? You know, and that didn't, that didn't make me turn around. I mean, I was like, oh, God, this is going to be really bad, you know, but that didn't make me turn around. I challenged through and uh, I went ahead and waited. I actually tried to shake Steve King's hand before he even took, you know, the 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 podium. And I, he took other people. He talked to other people. Oh, you know, like he kept looking at other people and other people and shaking hands with other people. And he tried to avoid me as much as possible until and I waited till the very end, till right before he had to go up. And I was like, I just waited and he had to face me sooner or later. So in the end, he ended up saying, hey, hello, thank you for coming, you know. And I told him at that time, I told him, you know, thank you for for being here. And I just want to let you know, I do have a question for you. And so, like, I kind of told him, I want you to call me and hold them accountable. So that was a good way for me, for him to know that I already had a question. So he can't pretend that he can't see my hands, you know, in the air, especially when I already told him I have a question for him. Uh, so then when I did, um, you know, just if you need to stand up, make sure that he can't say that he didn't see you uh, or he or she. <laughs> but um, and then just. Not back down. Uh, I think that I, after hearing everything that, I mean, everything that was said previous, you know, before I even had the chance to ask my questions, it was almost everything about it was negative and anti-immigrant. And despite that, I didn't give up and I still asked my question. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just that I think challenge through no matter what, if you're, if you're already there you might as well go through and ask a question or challenge in whatever way and just be prepared. Um, it, 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 it definitely does go to, to do your homework before you go in and ask about a certain topic. Um, I would say that dreamers typically are much better prepared than any elected official to ask or talk about immigration and statistics and research and data uh, rather than myths and lies. So I would say, you know, if you are going to go in on a certain issue, definitely do your homework so you know what you're talking about. And for instance, if there is a negative comment, for example, a lot of politicians say, oh, you know, immigrants bring in crime, blah, 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 blah. Well, doing my homework, I've realized, oh, there's a negative correlation with with immigrants, right, uh, uh, and, and crime. So it's it's good to know the facts. So when there is a myth thrown out there, you can correct them and say, actually, data shows this. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think the other thing that you've done, you always did that was very effective was uh, also telling your story. So you know, it's kind of like what what the, for, especially for the immigrant community to say, what do you want to do with me? Like this is who I am. What do you want to do with me? And and that um, that that sort of kicks it out of the policy conversation. And it's like you know, one one eye went to the, to to another. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I think that that was um, that was really powerful watching that. So another thing that you did, um, I just have maybe two more two more questions for you. But uh, the, the the next question I think for me is um, you, you've taken this from like, you know, organizing with your sister on your bicycle, riding around New Hampton, to then speaking up at town halls and you know being very public about um, about your status through the presidential uh, caucuses, um, and and then turning it into like a, a network or a group of people through Dream Iowa. And I'm wondering if you just have one or two tips um, to sort of go from, you know, a person that feels probably all alone, you know, trying to figure this out um, to then building out a network. Um, and I know that took probably years to do, but 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 um, do you have any advice for people that are kind of trying to do the same thing? Ooh. <laughs> um, something I've seen just with Dream Iowa taking off like it did is that amongst the leaders in the community, I I heard a lot of negative, um, sometimes bad talking about other leaders. So as someone that tries to stay away from that kind of stuff, I would say one big tip is to focus on positive and not negative and not trash talk any other organizations or people that are out there doing things. Um, I mean, obviously, if there's someone that's neg- that's bad for the community, you definitely don't want to say great things about them, right? But um, by talking bad about them, you're still getting the name out there. You're still promoting them. So you're not really helping yourself in any way. People are going to want to know who's this person that's so bad for the community, right? They're going to look them up. So either way, you're promoting them. So it's better just to focus on positive and not negative. And I think that that helped Dream Iowa be successful because we didn't make enemies. We focused on positive. We focused on actions rather than trash tacking other people and other organizations. So focusing on positive things and actions rather than words is something that I definitely recommend for anybody that's trying to put things together in their own community is definitely grow allies and grow uh, coalitions with other people, other groups, but stay away from negative, um, negative things and focus on positive and definitely focus on actions and not, not just words and other things like that. Great. And my last question, um, for you is, is, you know, especially in this time of Trump, what, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Uh, my community's perseverance is what gives me hope. You know, I actually have been talking to youth, trying to focus on youth, and I asked them, how many of you, and all of them, you know, it's usually groups of undocumented youth or even mixed status youth. So sometimes they're citizens, but their parents are undocumented. And I asked them, okay, how many of you have someone in your family that's a, that can fix about any car? And like all of them raise their hand. How many of you have a family member that makes the best food that you've ever had? Almost all of them raise their hand. How many of you have family members that could probably build 
um, a whole house from scratch. A lot of them raise their hands. So by doing that, I'm reminding them what our community is made of, why our community has been able to persevere no matter what, with every odd against us, with a lot of different institutions working against us and not being inclusive to our community. Despite everything, despite us not having any documentation, any sort of um, ID that connects us to this country, we've still been able to persevere and it's because of what we're made of and all the skills that we come with. Uh, we're valuable. We're definitely a valuable community and we just have to keep and keep remembering that and that's what makes me hopeful. Remembering just what we have to offer and how valuable our community is for Iowa and for this country. I'm Matt Hildreth, and you've been listening to Flyover Folk, brought to you today by Haymakers Community Engagement Consultants and RuralOrganizing.org. Our music today and every day comes from Brutal Bear, based out of Wichita, Kansas. For more information about them and this podcast, visit flyoverfolk.com.